0: even this jack 96.9 vancouver check us out today on your radio on the radio player canada app and on your smart speaker just tell it to play jack 96.9 if you've got the metal north
1: star metal recycling has you covered north star metal recycling is vancouver's premier metal recycler offering the highest prices on scrap metal it's fast service that's easy to deal with and they even offer pickups if you can't make it in. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Visit North Star Metal Recycling
0: today and ask for Adam. 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver or at NorthstarMetalRecycling.com. This could be your year to become a multi-millionaire. Choose from 10 grand prize options in the Hometown Heroes Lottery. See the homes at HeroesLottery.com and take your pick from homes in the Lower Mainland, including two in Vancouver or homes on Vancouver Island or the Okanagan. Or take 2.2 million cash. Hurry and get your tickets today. Call 604-648-4376 or go to HeroesLottery.com. 19 plus to play. Know your limit. Play within it. Hometown Heroes. Prefer paying with debit, but still want the points? Here's
1: how Katrina made a better choice and earned big with her everyday spending account.
0: I get points on every dollar when I shop. Last year, I earned 860,000. This year, I'm going for a million. I'm super freaking excited. I'm super freaking excited, too. From no monthly fee banking to rewards you
1: can get excited about, the PC Money account is just one way we make every day better.
0: For a limited time, earn up to 300,000 points in welcome offers. Conditions apply. Visit pcfinancial.ca slash getpoints to learn more.
1: CISL Vancouver is Sportsnet 650. The official home of the Canucks. Listen live on HD Radio 969 FM HD Channel 3.
0: Round two of the Stanley Cup playoffs begins tonight. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I am Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Hour, of course, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. .ca. Uh, Battle of Florida starts tonight. Of course, also, you know, the high-flying Colorado Avalanche against the, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say sleeper St. Louis Blues, because I think they're more than that now, but I don't know, what would you call it? Like, the, the frisky St. Louis Blues? You know what I mean? I don't know. There's something there.
1: There's something there. It It is that they have they have the margins taken care of. What the St. Louis Blues are is a thoroughly professional outfit, right? Like, the Blues are... Sort of the best possible version you could imagine of, of sort of what the Canucks could have been, where they don't quite have that high-end five-on-five gear. But, you know, they're able to excel on both sides of special teams and punch above their weight with two good goaltenders and uh, an ability to generate high-quality looks in the slot. The big difference, of course, is the, the St. Louis Blues have like 10 really good forwards and five really good defensemen. Yeah, And the Canucks don't have anything close to that type of depth. But but the profile, at least, is somewhat similar. Although, again, the Blues are also bigger. They're faster. They're just better. Uh, but you like Vancouver's high-end talent. So, I mean, you know, in your mind's eye, what's the best possible version of the Boudreaux Canucks? It's It's sort of that. I mean, I know they profile more closely to New York and St. Louis, right? Those have been sort of – or New York and Nashville. Those have been my sort of two analogies, but St. Louis is like the premium version of one of those teams. Well,
0: and that might be St. Louis might be more the kind of roadmap for the near future. If we're we're just kind of spitballing here, right? Like, okay, we want to graduate from new yeah. york nashville to more something more like st louis yeah. right
1: they have so much two-way talent so much two-way yeah. intelligence so much new know-how it's like the high-flying Avs against the inscrutably <laughs> polished st louis blues yeah and by the way let's go battle of alligator alley for this all part right of the series. all right that's a dream of mine like i always wanted to work a battle of alligator alley in the playoffs so and everyone sometimes calls it like the battle of Whatever. You know, like the Battle of Florida. Sure, sure, sure. But it's the Battle of Alligator Alley. It's All right. such a good one. I love name. it. That is a good one.
0: Uh anyways, we, we might get into the, a little bit m- those more uh, later on the show. But the reason I brought them up is just to say, you know, there's two really, really exciting uh high stakes round two playoff games on tonight. Meaningful games? But we are going yes, transfer Meaningful games, but you know where we're gonna start? We're gonna start with the Canuck's salary cap situation. Oh, obviously. <laughs> Oh, it's salary cap week
1: at the athletic. It absolutely if is. If you want some, if you want some salary cap deep dives, oh boy, oh boy, do I have you taken care of at the
0: So we broke it down yesterday, uh, and I know you were on a Alfred and Bruff, kind of uh, getting into it a little bit this morning as well. The Canucks, kind of an <laughs> overview of the Canucks' salary cap situation going into this offseason. and there's there's obviously um, some negatives to say the least, but there's some positives too, comp- especially compared to some recent seasons for the Canucks, as we've outlined. And there's breathing room.
1: Exactly. This is not a cap crunch season. And I think that's a really important thing for people. You know, we talk about the cap a lot in this marketplace, but I feel like there's not always a ton of work done on exactly what it looks like on exactly what the options are on exactly how tight it is. And that's sort of been an experience we had over the past two seasons where it was clear that the cap was going to severely limit Vancouver's options and, and sometimes the conversation around it was like, people are making too big a deal of this. Or the team would say, we have cap space. We're fine. Yeah, we're not worried about and it. And it wasn't true. Like it just wasn't, it materially was not true. And all of a sudden we're in this sort of flipped paradigm where management is very concerned about the cap and they should be. They should be for a variety of reasons because the cap flexibility that the Canucks have is fragile. However, it's also material. They also have, some flexibility. They could potentially run it back with the with the team that performed so well under Boudreaux, add a couple of pieces, two or three, mid-range kind of guys, and see if that works. Like that that is a feasible option and you could execute that plan without buying out a deal, without what have you. I yep. mean if you if you buy out Jason Dickinson and reassign, you know, uh, Kyle Burroughs, for example, right? Or even if you put Jason Dickinson below the line and reassign Kyle Burrows. Um, you know, you're looking at something like almost $8 million for three or four bodies. I mean, that's not nothing. You can improve the roster with that, but you have to be so careful because of how the club is structured with Bo Horvat, JT Miller, and Elias Pettersson all coming up. And, and this brings us back to the DFO interview. That Jim Rutherford did with, with Jason Greger and Sportsnet 650 contributor Frank Saravalli yesterday, there was a word that he used in discussing the club's cap situation that I think is worth dwelling on a bit. I, I want to kick it around like where the Blue Jays infield. <laughs> All right. Hey, at least they,
0: they got a hit with runners in scoring position yeah. yesterday. Oh, Answer so progress, yeah. baby steps. That that
1: they also are just so bad at fielding. It's incredible. The word was unravel. Yes, that stood out to me as well. Unravel. And and it's such a vital thing. Now, I know there's an increasing antipathy toward discussing where the team's at at the moment. There's such a burning desire among fans in this market, especially the hardcore fans who spend all their time talking about this team to move on from the dread that characterized it. the last era, but, you know, you can't ignore where the team is at and you can't deal with where the team is at without acknowledging the history of what's got them here, especially the recent history. And it's not the first time you'll have heard me say this, or or that our listeners will have heard me say this, but the team that was constructed this past season was difficult to, like, unmake. Right? It was difficult to unravel. And to hear Rutherford use that term, I thought really spoke to the... Um, who did the Lilliputians tie up again?
0: Uh, oh, I wanted Gulliver. to say Gilligan. Gulliver. I, I don't know why I wanted to say Gilligan. <laughs> but <obviously>, yeah.
1: <laughs> Gulliver. Okay. There's a Gulliver-esque element to that where, you know, the vision, the plan is restrained, for better or for worse, by where the club finds itself structurally and in terms of their overall cap position and where they find themselves is with some material space, and yet this is more a break- in the cap crunch, then it is the end of a cap crunch, particularly because even just to ass- just to keep this core group together, say you were di- a died in the wool believer that under Bruce Boudreaux, this is a 100-point team, a no-doubter second-seed quality roster in the Pacific Division, right? I don't agree with you. I don't think this team's going to finish ahead of Vegas and Calgary next season, even if they make... Three great moves. Like, I think you could bring in three good players and this team would still finish well behind both Vegas and Calgary next season. Yet, if you were a full-blown believer in the in what happened under Boudreaux and that that's the new level for this team, you can't even keep this group together without making some really hard choices. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not for this season, but certainly in the next 12 months, you're going to need to shed at least, at least... 10 million just to keep, just to keep this crew together. Just, just to keep the group together, just to do nothing, just to be passive and allow this team to keep building together. And from the sounds of it, Canucks management intends to be proactive and doesn't intend to necessarily sort sort of sit idly by and see if the Boudreaux experiment can continue to excel into next season without, you know, putting their hand on the scale in a, in a more meaningful way and beginning to reshape this team. But even like there it's not even an option really to do because of how because of what's coming down the pike because of the way that almost every star level forward that this team employs with the exception of Connor Garland is about to become significantly yeah. more expensive and and not in in the years ahead but like over the next 14 months 14 18 months you're going to need to see lifts for Certainly Besser, Miller, Horvat and then Pedersen six months thereafter. So, you, you know, unraveling that is definitely, definitely going to be the task of this offseason. It's beginning to sort of change the footing with which this organization looks ahead.
0: Yeah, and to your point about, you know, there's not there's not necessarily a short-term cap crunch right now for this team. They could easily kind of kick the can down the road, right? Hey, we're not going to make these tough decisions this year. We're going to re-sign Besser. We're going to keep everyone here, you know, maybe make a few short-term bets at the fringes of the roster to try to improve us. And then we will see what happens, you know, at the trade deadline next summer, we'll make the decisions. Then the problem is, as you said, you're, you're, it's kicking the can down the road, which has negative connotations for a reason because you're missing on some potential opportunities to do some creative things this summer that can set you up to be much, much better. And based on everything we've heard from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine, and specifically as you're referencing the kind of unravel comment, and I really thought in general that was kind of the most pointed criticism of where the team stands not from a roster standpoint but but from a big picture standpoint yeah yeah. because not only did he say the unravel line but he also was very explicit we don't have any young right-handed defensemen coming we don't have any young centers coming right which is 100% true but that was kind of the most explicit he's been critical of what he inherited right as you said what what has been left behind here for Rutherford and Alvian to work with and I think
1: the pieces they've had to pick up
0: yeah we have not got the sense from either of the the key decision-makers that they are high enough on this roster to justify kicking the can down the road, right? Like, you could justify that move if you thought, hey, we we can be a legitimate cup contender next year, right? So, yeah, oh, we've, sure. got, we've got some hard decisions down the road, but, okay, whatever, we'll deal with those down the road. Nothing we've heard from Jim Rutherford or Patrick Alvin, to me, suggests that they think that's the case. Well, and
1: if you double down in trying to upgrade this roster with pieces that have term, right? Then that impinges or adds to the severity of the difficult decisions you'll be making a year from now, right? And the prospects thing that you bring up is also such a crucial point because all of this is connected, right? Like it's the, you know, thigh bones connected to the leg bone, yeah. right? This is very much all connected in terms of overall organizational value, right? We know that the Canucks are a 92-point team, 10th in the West, 5th in the Pacific, right? Right. We know that a year ago, a year like last season, not not this one that just concluded, they were seventh in the All-Canadian Division. Now, we also know that they won a round in the actual playoffs and two rounds in the play-in tournament uh, or, like, in the overall tournament uh, in 2020. So, you know, you have to sort of look at where this team's at. And I, I do think it's fair to say that, you know, they've had moments, moments where they've looked on the precipice. Of competing, certainly for a playoff spot, durably, right? Mm -hmm. They had 60 games under Boudreaux, and they had the 2019-20 season plus the playoffs where you could see things turning around. The problem is, is that intermixed with that, you have about 80 games, a full season's worth of data, in which the team looked hopeless, hopelessly lost. So, you know, even if you want to bet that the best version of this team is the version you get next season. And if you just upgrade them and have a different voice behind the bench, things will be different. Like that's a whopping bet. You can't be making that bet with a ton of certainty. Even if you're, even if you're trying to look at this as favorably as possible from, from, a, from the team's perspective, that has to be scary because these are really high stakes off seasons that the team is about to go into. Right. But Horvat's 27. He's going to be 28 at the start of his next deal. JT Miller's 29. He's going to be 30 at the start of his next deal. Meanwhile, you've got a goaltender in Thatcher Demko is going to be 28. Peak of his powers when those Miller-Horvat extensions, should the Canucks sign them, kick in. And you've got Pedersen and Hughes who are going to be 24 and 25 respectively. Again, peak of their powers. We've been through too much miserable hockey in this market for the Demko-Hughes-Pedersen prime years to be wasted, right? Like that, we, th- this organization cannot afford to waste those years. And yet it's going to be tough to improve enough with how the team's com- positioned under the cap. And, and this again comes back to it all being connected. The easiest way to clear cap space, as we saw last off season, right? And there's a million examples of it is to attach assets to a bad contract in a trade with the Arizona Coyotes, <laughs> the NHL's favorite laundromat, right? In order to cleave some inefficient money off your books, Andrew Ladd for two seconds and a third, um, Anton Stralman for a second, and chonic who I who I quite like by the way, a good player. I, I thought he looked good. I'm, I'm rare among the Coyotes skaters, <laughs> he looked pretty good when I saw the Coyotes play last year. The and then and then the other example would be uh, uh, Shane Gostisbeere. By, acquired by the Arizona Coyotes for a couple seconds. So that's the easiest way to do it. But if you're the Canucks and you don't have any right-handed D coming and you don't have any centerman coming and the wings that are coming are already on your roster and you've got Jack Rathbone and that's nice, but, you know, almost every team in the league has a Jack Rathbone quality prospect. That Not, not to say that Jack Rathbone might not eclipse them. Like, I love Rathbone's speed. I'm as high on him as... Just about anyone you'll find in this industry. I, I think he should be an everyday player next season. I think he can help this team win games. But, you know, like every team has, go go look around the league. Go look at the next man up for most of these playoff teams. And there's some guy who looks pretty good, who's a young defender, who's, who's not playing. Like Joey Keane in Carolina, or Timothy Lilligren in Rasmus Sandin in Toronto, or, um, you know, Zach Jones in New York. Or or Nil's Linkfist in New York. I mean, every every one of these teams has a guy like this, so they need to restock their pipeline. We know that, and they can't really afford to attach those valuable futures, considering they don't have enough of them to bad deals to move them on. So they're yeah. going to have to find really creative ways to shed cap space. And again, this is regardless. Even if they take a passive approach and double down on this roster, these types of moves are going to be inevitable as part of your effort to keep the core group together, and if they want to change direction, these types of deals are going to be inevitable so that they have the flexibility required to put their stamp on the team. Like this, This is unavoidable. Even though the club could, in the short term, just graft additional talent onto their roster under the cap, it's unavoidable that tough decisions are coming, whether it's this summer or next. And the sense you get hearing Canucks management talk strongly suggests to me that those difficult decisions are coming you know sooner rather than later
0: and you know to, to backtrack just a little bit to your point about not wanting to waste any of the any more of the prime years of Demko Petterson and Hughes it's the kind of thing where you you have to start laying the groundwork to improve the team asap right because again if you kick the can down the road then you're putting yourself in a really really difficult spot next summer and you are running the risk that you're not going to be able to find kind of creative, elegant solutions to a lot of these problems. And I think that's why it has to start this summer. The opportunity cost of waiting a whole another season is just is just too great. Now, the interesting thing is there are a lot of different potential avenues for the Canucks to explore to try to open up some extra cap space. The one that you mentioned, right, just the classic, hey, we want somebody to take uh, whoever, you know, Tanner Pearson, and we'll give you a pick. Well, you know, you but probably P- don't, Pearson right, has
1: positive value. Right, but, but Jason Dickinson. Dickinson. Yeah.
0: Sure, Jason Dickinson, and we'll give you a pick. That doesn't really make sense. They don't have a second-round pick this year. They'd probably like to get one, right? So you're not really in a position where you can do that, but having said that, I think there's still a lot of other things they can explore, and I know you have a, a piece up at the Athletic today, kind of, with Harmon Dial, kind of outlining a bunch of the different pathways uh, that the Canucks have, and It's just really interesting because you can go down pretty much the entire roster and make a case for all but a handful of guys to be involved in some way in the process of clearing out cap space. Like, depending on which of these different avenues they choose, it it could be, again, almost anybody on the roster with the exception of, uh, you know, the top three or four guys that we all know about.
1: Yeah, the top three guys, Pod Colson, probably. Yeah. Right? I mean, those would be the only guys that I'd be dumbfounded to see involved in in one of these deals. And so this piece over at The Athletic, we sometimes build lists during the offseason. We like to build lists in the offseason, and usually it's like, you know, young defensemen to target, players with sandpaper to target. I'm definitely doing that next week, right? Like, you know, you go through and you do these player types and just sort of do a cost benefit of what the team might look at. And this time we decided to do it as concepts. (laughs) They're trade concepts that teams sometimes rely on. To move out money. And, you know, everything from if you attach a valuable asset, say a Niels Hoaglander, to a Jason Dickinson type contract, are you able to still get an asset back while shedding the Dickinson deal? Now, I don't think the Canucks should do that. I think they need cheap labor. I think Niels Hoaglander is a really good player. I-, I think that would be a mistake, but I'm just saying that's one of the options, one of the quivers, uh, or one of the arrows in your quiver, anyway. Going into this offseason, there's there's the classic hockey trade where you move out an inefficient salary for another team's inefficient salary, but perhaps get more out of that player mm-hmm. than the other team was. Right. There's the sort of classic proactive. We called it the Seth Jones proactive uh, extension maneuver where you allow a team to talk extension with a guy who's eligible to sign one on July 13th who you have no intention of signing and duck that contract while maximizing your return because the team has the security locked into a player they want. That would obviously apply to JT Miller and Bo Horvat. And then, you know, one of the ones that we talked about was the reverse OEL trade. And and this is not, like, turn around and trade, trade OEL. OEL. Yeah. This is the idea that you trade a good player with term on their deal for a less good player or a less good collection of players with less term on their deal. And we've seen this used to good effect a variety of times. First of all, the Arizona Coyotes did it with the Canucks and it you know, has set them up to get four more first round picks this year, right? Like the, the Roussel, Erickson and Beagle expire for the Coyotes and all of that money is probably going to end up being They're gonna rent it out to other teams. Yes. Some other guy who's at the tail end of their career and not quite great anymore. And you know, that that's what the Arizona Coyotes do. They build the exact same lineup that you had in NHL twenty twelve dynasty mode, right? Like that's that's the coyotes lineup basically. Like my Kessel lad Erickson top six is just slaying. So, you know, that's that, the approach the Coyotes took, and, and it's one that other teams have taken. Galchenyuk for Jason Zucker is is an interesting example, too. And by the way, Jim Rutherford was on the Zucker end of that trade. Jim Rutherford was also on the Hornquist for Mike Matheson end of that trade. So Rutherford himself has been pulling the He's trigger around on this these for a types lot. of deals. Yeah. Um, that's That's one approach that could make sense, even though the Canucks don't have a lot of guys with a ton of term.
0: Uh, you know, even Uh, outside of OEL who the situation is so complicated. So complicated. Well, and 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 I don't think the
1: team wants to move. him. So uh, that's my understanding anyway. Not that they wouldn't explore it, just that I don't expect it's going to happen. And for reasons beyond the complication, I think for reasons pertaining to his value, both on the ice and in the room. So, you know, I, We'll see sort of where that goes, but there's a ton of interesting options there. And considering that the Canucks do have some short term flexibility with with a dicier long term situation to be mindful of, you know, that that's an approach that I think could pay dividends. But but in every respect, right, the Canucks need to shed cap space in a way that does not cost them a ton of future assets like that's the crucial test here. And in a hard cap league, when your goal is to get both better and cheaper at the same time, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the hardest trick to pull off. And that's where the Canucks new management group sort of finds themselves trying to navigate and have it both ways. Being competitive in the short term while building for the long term. Not being able to waste the, the prime years of Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko. And, and probably being too good to properly bottom out, even for a single season. Uh, barring, you know, a, a, a catastrophic injury, but also not good enough to really feel like you should double down on this
0: group and add additional commitments. Well, and one of the other interesting things that Jim Rutherford said, almost as an aside in the interview with Jason Gregor and Cervelli yesterday, was, you know, he's talking about the need to clear cap space, but he also said, look, we're already not a playoff team, so it's not as if we can afford to completely strip down this team if we still want to take step forwards, right? So I don't think we're looking at a scenario where, you know, everything that's not nailed down is going to be gone because they do still want to get better. And if you're trading, you know, five guys, six guys who are regular contributors in your lineup, it's going to be really, really hard to do uh, replacing them all in one offseason. I think that speaks to what you're saying with OEL, right? Even beyond the fact that he has a no-movement clause, He's also a really talented player that they probably think can play a good, uh, an important role for them next year.
1: Or maybe even play better if his minutes are managed differently and he's put in more offensive situations. So, you know, in a variety of respects, what Canucks management is going to be navigating here is massively, massively complicated.
0: And, and I think when you think about it in that frame where they want to clear cap space without just doing having a complete fire sale, it kind of points to me towards we're looking at one or two maybe bigger ticket items like that might be the ideal way through now you still have to replace those guys like if it's if it's Tyler Myers and one of the high profile forwards that have been speculated right like all of a sudden that frees up an extra you know 10 11 million Uh, on your salary cap sheet for next year. So that's a big chunk of change, and it's only two guys. Now, it's two really important guys, and you probably still want to have a plan in place to replace the minutes that Tyler Myers was playing, certainly to replace whoever you're moving out of your top six in that scenario. But that seems to kind of be in the Venn diagram of... Clearing up a bunch of cap space without necessarily completely disrupting your roster and making it unrecognizable going into next year.
1: Well, and it dovetails nicely with what we've seen so far, right? Which is the shed and replace, right? Hammannick out, Dermot in. Dermot's cheaper. Dermot was acquired at the same cost, more upside, younger, faster. You feel like you're cheaper and better as a result of that deal. Mott out. He was expiring. We needed to net that asset. Richardson in off waivers a replacement with zero acquisition cost, right? That's sort of the, the, the give and go, like the tug of war that effectively I'm I'm sort of expecting to characterize this plan, which is the left hand tries to get younger and more affordable. And the right hand is consistent in seeking to at least maintain the club's level at the moment or raise the baseline with younger players going forward. And, and so, you know, let's put this in the context of some of the things we know the Canucks are doing. Exploring, signing Andre Kuzmenko. Mm -hmm. Well, there's your ready-made replacement should you decide to trade one of your big money forwards. There you go. You're ready to go.
0: Cheap, young, top six option. Top six
1: option, you think that he's going to contribute on the power play. Boom, right? Easy. And then you can stretch out your cap space further. So, you know, in the event that you consider dealing a Myers, well, uh, if the left hand's going to Jettison a player like that. The right hand's going to need an additional right-handed defenseman capable of handling a fair, fairly large minutes burden. And and I think that's likely to characterize what we're going to see, which is an attempt to have their cake and eat it too, as opposed to the more dramatic, you know, step back on paper reset. That and and look, while this makes sense and and I understand the approach. I also understand anyone who's like, didn't they try this? Didn't they try to acceler- accelerate their development curve under Jim Benning? And they did, but none of those moves <laughs> panned out. And, you know, like, Vey didn't work out. Um, Granlin didn't work out. Berchi ultimately didn't work out. Emerson Edom didn't work out. Adam Clendening <laughs> didn't. I mean, when you go 0 for 6 and end up making fewer draft picks than you're allotted in rebuilding seasons, it's a, it's a cataclysm. There's still ways to do it that also permit you to make eight to nine picks a year, yeah. and you know, sort of continue to move forward incrementally. But is it the approach that I'd personally recommend? Is it is it a dramatic enough approach for what this organization needs? You know, I'm skeptical. I, I, I'd at least I at least have to editorialize and say while I while I can see the seams and I think it makes sense. Overall, with where the club is at and what their historic priorities are, which is win now all the time, uh, it makes sense, but I'm skeptical that it's
0: sufficient to reorient this club into being a contender in the years ahead. I will say from my perspective, the key difference in that kind of approach that's been tried in years past, and we had somebody text in. Uh, saying, you know, Benning kicked the can down the road for seven years. People are tired of that. Fundamentally, people just want to see the team build the proper way for the long term. And I, I agree with that. There is definitely that widespread sentiment. I think the difference between what we've heard from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin and what we heard and saw so often in the past was Rutherford and Alvin are at least still talking about the importance of building the prospect pipeline, restocking the draft cupboards, right? Which is so often from Jim Benning, it was oh, you know, we, we, we're we confident we're going to find good players with the picks we still have, right? So we don't yeah. need those extra picks. They're at least still mindful of that. Now, in some ways, that makes the whole process even more challenging because you're trying to do basically every good thing at once. You're trying to get better. You're trying to get cheaper. You're trying to get more prospects and more picks. That's really, really hard to accomplish well, all at the same time. Especially in a hard cap league with guaranteed salaries, yeah. right? I mean, I, I've
1: expressed on this station before that I'm a little bit skeptical with the way the NHL is set up that you can actually build simultaneously for the future and the present like I kind of think you need to make a choice but if you're advocating for a tear it down rebuild you have to be very honest about what you're talking about which is you know dealing Bo Horvat, dealing Thatcher Demko right because Thatcher Demko will stand in your way of being bad enough to get into the Bedard's sweeps right so if you're willing to entertain that conversation then you can have that conversation and have that take, but, but be aware that that's what you're advocating when you're saying they should bottom out and, you know, build the right way. Like I don't entirely disagree that it has to be something they talk about internally, but when you put those names attached to that take, you can understand why the organization would be like, or <laughs> here's a third way we have to at least try mm-hmm. because we can't afford to spin our wheels for more seasons during Demko, Patterson, and Hughes' shared statistical prime.
0: Uh, We'll keep talking about the Canucks' salary cap situation, how they can create and use the salary cap space they do have, plus could a very high-profile UFA center... Uh, makes sense for the Canucks to pursue this summer. We will get into that. Ooh. Plus, take more of your texts. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Keep your thoughts and questions coming in about the Canucks offseason. Lots more to come on the other side. It's the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, here with you for another segment. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. We were talking about uh, the Canucks salary cap situation and some of the ways they could explore to create even more salary cap flexibility in the summer. And uh, this unsigned text came in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. To me, the Canucks should be talking to Philly, I believe with Giroux gone and their talk of not wanting to rebuild. We could get them interested in JT Miller and Tyler Myers possibly as well. And look, man, if you're talking about a team that you can win a trade with this offseason because of their situation. Philly is number one on that list for me. I, I, I just I like There's not a lot of dupes in the pool anymore, but Philly might be one of them. And it's not even just about like, oh, they're not smart or whatever. I, I that don't, don't think th- they're that was particularly mean. smart. That was mean. <laughs> but but it's true. But it's also <laughs> about the situation they find themselves in. I think there's a lot of parallels. Uh, to the Canucks last off season, right? Oh, Where yeah. it's coming off a really disappointing season, but with a team that's theoretically supposed to be better, and there's a ton of pressure to do something are to you, juice Are you it. saying the Canucks made a bunch of mistakes last off season? Uh,
1: maybe. Yeah, I mean, the Canucks, Philly, Vancouver, or sorry, it's the Canucks, Flyers, and Dallas Stars Danger Zone. That's like, those are the teams that love the mushy middle. They're their card-carrying members of the mushy middle.
0: And, you know, I know in your <laughs> um, in your piece at The Athletic, one of the things you brought up was the last year of James Van Rie- Riemsdyk's uh, contract, which is on Philly's book, one more year at $7 million. And, you know, if they are extremely motivated to add talent, would they be interested in trading that contract to somebody and potentially giving up an asset to get it? And that's the kind of thing where if you do open up a big chunk of cap space, right, by moving – you know, a guy like Tyler Myers by moving JT Miller, maybe not to Philly even, but just anywhere, all of a sudden you can entertain something like that. And again, I just think Philly, that is a team, I completely agree with the texture. That is a team the Canucks should be calling and talking about a lot of different things because there's a lot of interesting
1: possibilities with them. Well, and let's move to the eastern part of Pennsylvania, right? Because the Rutherford-Pittsburgh axis has already proven fruitful in terms of staffing for Vancouver, right? We've seen... Derek Clancy, their ex player personnel guy, move over and become an assistant general manager. Uh, they hired the general manager, Patrick Alvine, who was a Pittsburgh Penguins assistant general manager. There's been a, like there's been a understanding or, or a thought process anyway within the chattering classes in Vancouver hockey circles that you know, the, the Pittsburgh Vancouver pipeline is is likely to be a bit flush. We know, for example, that Bruce Boudreau has watched their American League affiliate play recently, partly, however, because the Wilkes-Bears-Scranton Penguins happened to be matched up with Boudreau's former team, the Hershey Bears, and of course, Boudreau still lives in that area, so maybe, maybe there's much ado about nothing there, but it's certainly interesting that the head coach would have gone and watched the Penguins affiliate, and today, we had a pretty interesting garbage bag day. Oh, yeah. In Steel City with Evgeny Malkin commenting and talking about his future. He's a pending unrestricted free agent, right? And while his skills are diminished, he's still a pretty sensational offensive player and a massive weapon on the power play. He also has weight. There's a real weight to bringing in guys like that. So his presser sounded a little bit like a goodbye. In a lot of ways, right? I mean, he talked about considering Crosby and Latang his brothers, right? Um, one Canadian and one French Canadian. It's not just hockey, it's life. We spend so much time together. Sid is an amazing guy. He's my favorite player, my favorite guy. He then went on to talk about his contract status. And he said, I believe I'm a good player, and I believe good players sign good contracts. And this is, of course, in the wake of some reporting from my athletic yep. colleague, Rob, uh, Rob Rossi, who suggested that the Penguins had given low ball offers to both Malkin and Latang that had offended no less than Crosby himself. Malkin went on to add, I hope we sign a good deal. I can only say right now I want to play like three or four more years. Money is not a big deal, but I have family, I have parents. I want a good future for them. As we think about and discuss, you know, the, the Pittsburgh Pipeline, the, the Kasperi Kapanins of the world, right? The John Marino's, the Marcus Pedersons. The Malkin situation's an interesting one to me, particularly if the Canucks can clear enough cap space. If you want to shift the culture of an organization, I mean, Sundin 2.0 is sort of the way that I'd be thinking about this, right? You bring in a guy with a ton of weight, takes a ton of attention and pressure off of the likes of Pedersen and Hughes, right? All of a sudden, they're still your hopes for the future, but they're not the guys in the same way. There's there's a guy with three cup rings, you know, a a Hall of Fame-bound center who'd come in. I mean, it would massively change the dynamics. And if you wanted the type of weight in your locker room that, you know, championships and and a Hall of Fame-bound career bring, there's really only one guy on the market this summer Potentially on the market, of course, because Malkin may well end up just staying in Pittsburgh. But there's only one guy on the market who would bring that type of gravitas to your organization. It's Pittsburgh number 71. And as that situation unfolds and as his teammates like Brian Rust, Chris Letang, guys that Rutherford and Alvin are super familiar with, all sort of talk about what they're looking for in free agency. It's hard not to wonder if the Canucks could end up being a bidder. For some of their services,
0: it's a really, really fascinating possibility. And this this conversation, uh, well, we were going to get into it anyways. But Pablo texted in six fifty, six fifty earlier in the show. Is Malkin a realistic possibility this summer? He could be the new Sundin, echoing what you're the comparison you're making to the Matt Sundin uh, deal that Mike Gillis did. And of course, we've heard uh, over the years from the players who were young players on that Canucks team the impact that Matt Sundin coming in and seeing his work habits, seeing his professionalism up close had on their future careers. Malkin is so fascinating because it is so, so rare for a player of his caliber who is still producing at a very high level, not what he once was, but again, still producing at a very high level to be open on the free market, on the open market. Right. And I I think you have to consider this in light of the new ownership in Pittsburgh, because so often the way this would be handled in the NHL was not that they would give Malkin a blank check, right. But it would be, Hey, we you're a, you're a major part of the, the history of this franchise. We want you to be here. We want you to stick around. We're going to make it happen. That does not sound like where the process is going right now. As you said, based on the reporting from your colleague Rob Rossi, who's extremely dialed in in Pittsburgh, specifically with Evgeny Malkin. I believe he literally <laughs> wrote the authorized autobiography of Evgeny Malkin. So this is a guy who has his sources where Malkin is concerned. That it look, it's not it doesn't mean it's a guarantee that he's going to hit the market, but it's certainly not proceeding in the way you would normally expect these kinds of negotiations to go.
1: Well, it's a big inflection point for a Pittsburgh Penguins organization that sold, right? In December. In December, the Pittsburgh Penguins organization was was bought by the John Henry Group, right? Who own Liverpool and the and the Boston Red Sox. So, there's very much new leadership even above the management level in pittsburgh then there's also new executive leadership in pittsburgh in ron hextall and brian burke and while they've had one offseason this is sort of the season where you've got the old core you know expiring mm-hmm. their deals are expiring like this is an inflection point the pittsburgh penguins are sort of one of the biggest wild cards particularly because they played so well all season they were a 103 point team They were the better team in six of their seven playoff games, and and as a result of an act of God and a variety of injuries, uh, didn't advance. You know, quite wild, truly. Uh, This team seems like the ultimate wild card in the NHL this offseason. They could go in any number of directions, and it's impossible to understand. We know that Hextall has a patient M.O. We don't know what the John Henry ownership group prefers. So, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see where this goes, but certainly a situation that bears monitoring and one that I wanted to bring up today, particularly because in a lot of ways, Evgeny Malkin's comments at locker room cleanout day almost felt like a goodbye in, in a far more explicit way than I would have expected when I woke up this morning.
0: And, you know, predictably and understandably as well, this comment comes in when we started talking about it. Evgeny Malkin, too old. And look, we've spent a lot of time talking on this show about the dangers of signing uh, players who are about to go into their 30s. Now, I will say the key difference for me with Evgeny Malkin is, and again, he'll turn 36 this summer. So he would be starting this new contract at age 36, as he said uh, you know, three or four more years is what he's looking at. So I would expect a three or four year deal is what he's going to try to means sign.
1: It lives on your cap no matter what, right? Like yeah. it's a thirty five plus contract. Different rules govern uh, a deal
0: like that. So there are a hundred percent risks associated with this. There's there's no doubt about that. But to me, there is a big difference between signing a player like Geno Malkin, who it's not just that he's an elite player. He's won everything there is to win. In the NHL, obviously on a team level with the three Stanley Cups, but in, as an individual as well. We're, won- we're talking
1: about a guy who's going to have 12 to
0: 1,300 points yeah. in his career. He, he's not just star player X. And that's not to denigrate any of the other options who who might be on the market, but he is just in a different tier as a player. Like, Conn Smythe and Hart Trophy and Art Ross Trophy award-winning players don't come on the market all that often. And <laughs> I think you are, you're willing to accept more risk. When one of those types of players, who, by the way, your management knows and won cups with and has a connection with, all of a sudden becomes available, potentially becomes available. So, to me, that changes the conversation a lot. But also, I will say. He was also still point per game this season. Exactly. And point per game in the playoffs. Three goals,
1: six points, and seven games in the
0: playoffs. And when you sign a player who's 29 to a seven or eight year extension or something like that, Yeah, the term is just so different, right? Like, if you get Malkin on three years, even if it goes really poorly, it's only a three-year deal, right? So it's bad. You don't love that it's on your books for three years, but it's not something that's going to be haunting you six, seven, eight years down the road, right? So I understand it. There is downside, certainly, but because of the caliber of player he is, the weight he has, as you described, and the fact that it will be such a shorter-term deal, I think those are risks you live with. Like, if you can add a talent like Malkin to your organization, you kind of have to explore every possibility for it, right? And obviously this would require them moving a whole bunch of salary cap space out this summer to open it up and all of that. But man, those opportunities do not come along all that often. I think you got to strike when they do.
1: Well, and it also would speak to, I think you only do the Malkin deal. You only do the Malkin deal if you think he can meaningfully come in and address some of the gaps in culture and work habits and professionalism and practice habits that Alvin and Rutherford have been pinpointing in some of their pointed remarks about this team's quality since they took over at midseason, right? If you think that he can be a partial answer to that situation, well, then it's worth doing. If you think the culture of this group needs a shakeup, there's really only one guy you can bring in with that type of weight in the entire league. Like, there's no one else. So if you view that as a must have to, to get this organization sort of out from the mediocrity it's been mired in, not, not just results wise, but, but in, in terms of process, then that's a singular piece. That's a rare opportunity and, and one you have to explore, not, not one I'm even necessarily advocating for, you know, uh, in sort of a robust way, so much as, you know, something that I think you have to at least kick the tires on, think about, talk about internally. Discuss particularly in a world where you're pitching Andre Kuzmenko, you've got Vasily Podkolzin, right? I mean, there's a- additional benefits that could come from that too, in terms of creating a environment for Russian players. Um, it'll be interesting to watch it play out, but at least it's an, an interesting thing to talk about and think about with where this team is situated and how uncertain both the Pittsburgh Penguins offseason is, but also where the Vancouver Canucks are going and how, and how little we really understand at this moment about what exactly the club has in mind in charting a future course.
0: Tons of feedback coming in on the, uh, on the Malkin topic. Uh, Austin and Langley is on your wavelength there. Drancer. He says, a Malkin pod Colson Kuzmenko second line is what you're saying. I, yep. I think there would be uh, some some significant fan interest in that for sure. This unsigned text comes in. I'd get season tickets if Evgeny Malkin signed with the Vancouver Canucks. But uh, lots of texts on these lines as well. This one comes in. No more aging superstars with past experience on the downslope of their careers. Just wanting a paycheck. Been been there, done that with Messier and Sundin. No thanks. Uh, and another one comes in. Malkin is a good player, but please no, not another Messier or Sundin Has been's and then finally uh, this one from Nelson and Kelowna says Sundin was an impact player for or Sundin had an impact for the Canucks younger players. What impact besides against the team's cap with nothing to show for it? And first of all, I don't really understand grouping Matt Sundin and Mark Messier and those experiences uh, together. I, I do. I think that makes perfect sense.
1: I think that makes perfect sense. The only the only gap the only gap is that anyone saying that Sundin was in it just for the paycheck, is way off because he got talked down from a two-year offer to a one-year offer, right? Like, he he only ended up coming for one year. Sure. And, again, you talked to talk to Ryan Kessler about it, you talked to Alex Burrows about it. Um, you know, the, the impact that he had on them was massive. Massive. The Twins, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll say the same things about Pavel Dimitra. As for Messier, you know, definitely there is a generation of players... Beloved by Canucks fans, who he completely alienated. Right, your your Geno Ogiks, your your Mark Messier. There was a feeling among that group that he was part of management and that he was primarily responsible. Well, along with Mike Keenan, although Mike Keenan was his coach for the dismantling of you know the the twenty uh, the 1994, 1995 core. But you talk to Nasland and Bertuzzi and Jovo and Strudwick and some of those young guys who were com- Brian McCabe, uh, who were on that team. And while there were some qualms with some of Messier's uh, antics, uh, there were nonetheless a a fair bit of respect for the way that he treated them and how he helped them level up. You'll recall, for example, that Marcus Naslund was never a top-line player until he was Messier's Mm linemate. And we all know what happened thereafter. Uh, In both cases, while those players' individual contributions, while members of the Canucks, never lived up to expectations, and in Messier's case was a... you know, cataclysmic, frankly. The stuff that came next, what came after it, in terms of how the players that they played with, whose careers they touched in Impact, leveled up significantly, um, you know, resulted indirectly, but nonetheless, in some of the most exciting years this franchise has ever enjoyed, both in the early parts of this century and in the early parts of this past decade. So... You know, I, I think it makes perfect sense to lump
0: them together. Well, the only thing is, the only difference is, as you said, like, Mattson Dean didn't do anything other than sign a big paycheck, which ultimately didn't hurt the Canucks in any way. It's not like they were going to use that money on anything else that season. And, and he, he didn't do anything to alienate fans in the same way that Messi He
1: also did. ended up signing for something like 35%, or sorry, 60% of what he was originally, yeah. no, no, less than that, because he ended up signing at like $7 million for one year. Like, he was offered twenty. You know the idea that Matt Sundin was just in it for a paycheck does not hold yeah. up.
0: Yeah, and with Messier, I think the point you make is very well taken of the impact he had on the younger players. But I also understand where the frustration and the alienation comes from for a lot of fans. And oh, I just don't—I don't see any reason for fans to be like angry at Matt Sundin. Uh, he uh, wore—he like, wore a Leaf sweater. <laughs> I guess, I guess so. that's what it comes down to, but I don't know for what he did here. I, I really don't understand that one at all. Uh, 650, 650. Keep your thoughts coming in, but that's going to do it for us. Uh, we're going to end on a defense of the Mark Messier era. You love to do that. The people show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is coming up next. It's the home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650.
1: Thigh bones connected to the leg bone.